one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. to another, yes, I said another episode of Talking Space. This is Mark Ratterman. We are recording Talking Space episode 1515, which means it's the 15th episode of our 15th season. We are recording on the 26th of December, 2023. I'd like to welcome first Dr. Kat Robison. Great to be here. Thanks, Mark. And our ever-present Larry Heron. Thank you, Larry, for carrying the ball so much this year. Hey, uh, not a problem. I'd love to do it. Glad to be here. Let's roll. Well, we've got a variety of things to talk about. What I do have for you is a story on something that I became aware of, oh gosh, probably a couple months ago. And it was a show on uh, Amazon Prime called A Million Miles Away with astronaut Jose Hernandez. And that story aired on Amazon Prime is just an incredible inspiration. And I thought, you know, why not have something that makes you feel good? Astronaut Jose Hernandez, um, I'm going to have some links that you'll be able to look around at. For one, he was interviewed on a uh, twit.tv show, episode 84 of This Week in Space. And each of these things that I'll refer to is interesting because it brings up different things that are not necessarily the same material as what's in the uh, Amazon Prime show. He also had an interview that was done by none less than his daughter, Vanessa Hernandez, on her TikTok channel. And there will be a link to that. I think you'll find that interesting. And there's also a trailer. If you don't have access to Amazon Prime, there's a trailer that uh, is just plain fun and cool. This should be no surprise because whenever you follow any particular astronaut, oftentimes you find that they have done a lot of things in a lot of different places other than just being an astronaut and flying in space. He has a foundation called the Reaching for the Stars Foundation. He also has TierraLunaEngineering.com, and he also runs and owns a vineyard. So take a look at the material that we'll be sharing in links to the show notes, and I hope you enjoy it. Next up, Larry, you've got some information for us about none other than SpaceX, Starship, and all of the complications of, of their days these days. It's hard for us to let an episode go by without mentioning SpaceX. That's, uh, so we're bringing you the up-to-date on the, the ongoing lawsuit initiated by a consortium of several environmental groups led by the Center for Biological Diversity versus the Federal Aviation Administration, SpaceX, and uh, now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. 
uh, over environmental issues surrounding SpaceX's Starship test launches from their Boca Chica, Texas facility. So on December 15th, the plaintiffs filed a supplemental legal claim in federal court criticizing the FAA for failing to properly analyze the environmental impacts of the first Starship launch before issuing a revised license for the second launch. The groups argue that both the FAA and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service fell short of their obligations under the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, to review the environmental effects of the launches. The FAA and the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, stated in the complaint, quote, once again failed to take the requisite hard look at the impacts of the Starship Super Heavy launch program through the supplemental NEPA analysis. And while some condemn the government for not doing enough to protect the environment, others argued that agencies like the FAA and Fish and Wildlife are causing unnecessary delays. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas expressed frustration with what he called, quote, asinine delays, unquote, resulting from environmental reviews, emphasizing the need for efficient commercial space activities. And meanwhile, NASA Deputy Administrator Pam Melroy highlighted the importance of SpaceX's Starship for the Artemis Lunar Exploration Program and stated that NASA is actively engaging with environmental regulatory agencies to ensure the success of these activities. And meanwhile, the FAA is continuing to oversee the investigation into the second Starship launch, which resulted in the destruction of both the Super Heavy booster and the Starship upper stage by their flight termination systems. And we also have to point out here that it's just the mere fact that the flight termination systems were used at all is makes the requirement, creates the requirement that another mishap investigation must be conducted according to existing regulations. There's no surprise about that. Uh, the investigation is progressing, although I haven't been able to find any reliable details online about what went wrong or what steps will be taken to correct the problems, although there's speculation aplenty on social media about it. And uh, SpaceX is no doubt working hard towards qualifying for the modified launch license for its upcoming third integrated test flight. Uh, and also, this according to spacenews.com, uh, in a December present, December 12th presentation to a local group in Brownsville, uh, Kathy Leaders, a former NASA associate, associate Administrator for Space Operations and current General Manager of Starbase for SpaceX, said she expected the next Starship launch to occur in early 2024. She said, it would be great if we were the, in the first quarter, definitely, according to a report by myrgv.com. Uh, quote, Elon obviously would probably say the end of December, but I don't think we'll get there, unquote. And I think it's safe to say, you guys, that I, they won't get there by the end of December, but I would still predict that uh, they'll definitely get there sometime in the first quarter of next year. Any opinions about that? Well, I can say I'm glad they don't ask me to run that show because it's a complicated business. There's a lot of moving pieces. And uh, best of luck to everybody. <laughs> there you go. It's it's not like it's a hobby. It's something that the, uh, the U.S. and the industry needs. So we want to see it work. Uh, we're going to talk in a few minutes about just the Ascend wrap-up. 
regulation and regulatory issues um, were a common thread throughout a lot of the the very large sessions. Um, so, you know, one thing that that during um, ascend was confirmed is that the FAA continues to sort of um, have its hands off period to be extended past the January first expiration, and there was a Senate hearing around that same time in October that confirmed that. So, I definitely expect, um, yeah, that. SpaceX will probably have success um, because we are in a regulatory environment, at least within the U.S., that continues to to want to be a bit more hands-off than hands-on. And explain to uh, for us a little bit about what exactly that means, that hands-off versus hands-on uh, issue. That's that's something that's embedded in a regulation, isn't it? Or, or am I mistaken? Yes, there? that's correct. So um, the hands-off period essentially means that the FAA cannot enact any new regulation until that period stops Uh expires. So as long as that hands-off period is in effect, there's going to be no new regulation. Uh, Now, as a (laughs) political scientist who specializes in policy and knowing that U.S. policy has great influence around the world and other space areas, do I think that's the best idea? Perhaps not, Um, especially considering some of some of the things we've seen in the in recent years around um, some space companies. Uh, But that's that's what it is. I do think that, um, especially within the United States, our startup or our new space sector is really no longer that new and no longer in startup mode. Um, so sort of this argument that we need less regulation in order to not stymie growth, I think is starting to lose its steam and lose its legs because, you know, space SpaceX is no longer a startup, right? Um, Blue Origin isn't a startup anymore. Even Virgin, you know, with all their issues, not a startup. Um, and these are the regu- the the private companies, especially that are that are interacting with these regulations. And I think in order to ensure we have continued sustainable and responsible use of space, we do need to think about what are the regulatory and legal frameworks that we can put in place to ensure that. Um, I read recently, and I'm sorry, I don't have the report right off the tip of my head, but because of the vast amount of Starlink satellites, it's something like 40 to 50% of all satellites currently in orbit are Starlink which is sort of insane, especially considering that they're very, very, very lightly regulated. Um, and they have enormous impacts beyond just perhaps providing um, satellite service. And there's some other issues we can go in with Starlink that probably are outside the purview of our podcast. But that's quick, quick little wrap up on regulatory issues there. <laughs> well, it's my understanding that there's even there's even something embedded in current regulation that that prohibits the government from promulgating any safety regulations until after there's an accident. Is that is that what accurate my my memory on that? I believe so, but I'm also remember going off memory. I have to go look it up, but I believe that that's correct. Yeah. Um, I think you can argue we've had some accidents, although they're calling them mishaps. But um, yeah, well, I guess I'm know. talking about the sort of accident that results in somebody dying. You know, yeah, and I think it's it's an incredible mistake that you don't regulate safety prior to the loss of life. And I think that's a lesson that we should have learned. We've had it happen several times um, in our history. And the fact that our our regulatory, or I wouldn't say regulatory, I think our regulatory bodies have the initiative. The fact that there is a lack of political will 
to empower our regulatory bodies to ensure that space is as safe as possible is, you know, unfortunate. Agreed. Get no argument from me. Speaking of regulatory issues, um, I did want to take a chance to just wrap up our visit to Ascend. Uh, it was really exciting to, to be able to go to that conference. It was at the end of October in Las Vegas. Ascend is the um, AIAA's um, annual space conference. Um, and next year, they'll actually be holding it in July instead of October because they're going to hold it in conjunction with their annual um, aviation conference. So if you like space and planes, you can be really happy and go to both in the same same time. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about some they've since our last recording when I shared the interview with you from um, NASA's Surface Vision program, which I thought was a really exciting interview, and I hope you've all had a chance to listen to that. Um, they have released just some information on, on the attendees of Ascend, and I thought it would be interesting to um, share with you um, sort of like the audience demographics, the people that were there. Um, it was a really broad range of people and ages. Um, so, you know, from your youngest people, 18 to 24. Um, all the way up to we had some people who were over 75 and each sort of 10 year um, difference had between 10 to 15 percent. So it was a very well balanced age demographic um, was mostly men <laughs> as usual um, when you go to these conferences. It is getting better that we do see more women involved um, and then also career length. You mostly had people, it was very interesting, you had people who were there who were in the first part of their career, so what you would consider early career people or young professionals, and then people who had been in um, their career over 20 years. Um, and this is actually something that we see happen a lot in conferences. This is not just a send, where there's a lot of support for early career young professionals to attend these conferences. And then you get the senior people who are coming because they've been invited to talk, but you sort of miss out in this mid-career level. Um, so just an interesting thing to see this happen at this conference as well. Um, and in terms of other... Uh, Content that was covered, something that I found very interesting is there was a lot of conversation, especially in the big plenary highlight um, around regulatory and policy issues that are currently ongoing within space. We talked a little bit just about how the FAA is going to extend that hands-off regulation period. But what's very interesting is that the ITU, which is the uh, International Telecommunication Union, um, and I found out that that used to stand for the International Telegraph Union um, and when it was first uh, established, they're considering whether or not um, there needs to be a regulatory framework for lunar communications. Um, so that was very interesting. So that was a very interesting conversation. Um, that was um, Joanne Wilson, who's deputy to the director of the ITU's Radio Communication Bureau, who was talking about this and and. That conversation was a very interesting and nuanced conversation over how do we fulfill obligations um, from both regulatory and legal, but also treaty obligations and still maintain the ability to access and use telecommunications that are needed for space. There is a treaty level agreement that governs these things and they do meet occasionally to discuss what are things that need to happen. So they're expecting that these discussions will take place in uh, 2027. So quite a lot of lead up. They've got three years before um, they they are going to be going to that conversation. But it is interesting to know that these are the things that we're thinking about. I mentioned before, 
when we're talking about the regulation around launch is that we have a tendency within all areas of government, but especially within space um, in recent times to have a very reactive regulatory policy. And what Larry was talking about where, you know, you can't really do anything until there's been a major accident. You know, that's a reactive policy. And that means that we're always going to be playing catch up. Whereas one interesting thread that came not only from Joanne Wilson, but you heard this from Janet Cavandi, you heard this from Pam Melroy at um, Addison, is that there is a real desire to craft policy and regulation that looks forward to the future, that can be flexible, and that can look forward to what will happen. Uh, So thinking along the lines of what we decide now will impact how space is used in the future. And we talk about it on the show all the time, of impacts of non-sustainable uses of space, things like space debris, not having plans to deorbit your satellites or your rockets or whatever it is, debris from things like uh, ASAT tests. So, you know, blowing up a satellite or something in space. Um, We have these conversations and we know that this is a very serious issue, the debris in space and what are we going to do with this debris? And, this is an issue that's only going to get worse. And so there's a lot of desire to be able to regulate that and and be able to have agreement, not only at the country level, but at the international level as to um, ways of operating in space that allow us to continue to have a safe, sustainable and secure environment. So that was an interesting conversation. The other interesting regulatory conversation that I that we found was between um, providers. So you have like your major providers like Lockheed, Boeing, et cetera, um, who are doing things like on orbit servicing. So where they're developing programs where they will service satellite and other craft um, within orbits could be refueling, et cetera. We've talked about this a bit with cislunar space and the deep space gateway. But talking about the need for there to be norms in that environment, especially concerning sort of like interoperability of design. So common docking mechanisms, common fueling mechanisms, what are the, what are the regulatory or the policy steps that we can take to ensure that we have these common ways of interacting with spacecraft um, or satellites designed by different manufacturers within different contexts in different countries. Because, you know, we need to be able to to essentially plug and play. If anyone travels internationally here, you know, whenever you go overseas, you've got to carry an adapter. Maybe you have to have a converter because it uses different, you know, the electricity uses a different voltage. You know, I'm here in Australia. We use a different voltage and a different plug than we do in the United States, um, which means in order to to bring over my treasured Vitamix, I had to also bring over like a 15 pound voltage converter um, in order to be able to use that. Um, And when you're talking about sending things to orbit, something that weighs 15, 20 pounds to convert something is just not practical because it costs so much to launch, even in today's more competitive launch environment where reusable launch has brought down that cost. So that's just a a big wrap up to say that it was a very interesting conference. Um, Of course, regulatory and policy weren't the only things that were discussed, but we talk about it a lot here on the podcast. So I I follow those things and um, I'll drop a couple links in the, in the show notes. Um, So shout out to Jeff Faust, who's, you know, we've um, 
reference his work a lot. He's been a friend of the pod. Um, but he's written a couple write-ups on on Ascend on these regulatory issues that I think would be interesting for everyone to read. So I'll drop those links for, for all of you um, so you can read those as well. But yeah, so Ascend was um, really exciting, hoping to be able to attend again in the future. If not me, maybe one of my colleagues. We were one of um, 19 credentialed media who were there. And it was really exciting to be able to, to get that um look at Ascend. And then again, just a very big thank you to AIAA for allowing us to come and take part in that conference and be able to share that with you, our listeners. Well, thanks very much for that rundown, Kat. Yeah, my pleasure. Makes makes me wish I had been there. <laughs> Mark, I was just thinking next year, I think we need to send you because it's going to be like aviation and space. And I feel like that's just like your sweet spot. You'll come back and have probably several seasons of shows worth of content. Well, yeah, I don't know. I've only been to a handful of conferences, to be honest. And I found that they were very interesting in some of the uh, thoughts that I heard expressed. Some of the lectures uh, still stick with me as being, wow, that was, that was something special. I'm glad I went. Um, in fact, had contact with somebody uh, from, I think it was 2011, perhaps, uh, the hundred year starship symposium that I went to with, uh, something going on that, uh, that, that this lady is, is part of. So I need to check that out and maybe bring some more information to talking space on it. Kat, would you like to go into the ACSG survey? That was interesting to find that, uh, that you were involved in that. Yeah, I'm really happy to talk about this. So one of the hats that I wear over here um, is that I am a senior research fellow at the Australian Center for Space Governance, which is based within the Australian National University's In Space Institute. And one of the projects that I've um, been working on and we're still continuing to work on is the first ever comprehensive survey of Australian public opinion on space. Um, so this is a public report that we've done. So we'll drop some links in the show notes. Um, you can read the entire publication. And then also there was a piece in the conversation. So if you just want to read a news article about it, we wrote a piece there. Um, so we'll drop the link for that too. But essentially what we wanted to do is to be able to measure in a comprehensive way what Australian, what the Australian public thinks and thought about space. Because there's been a few survey questions here and there, but nothing, you know, to the extent of what we know, for example, in the US about public opinion of space. And we know that in general, especially when you look at like the space, like NASA, our National Space Agency, People know what NASA is doing, they're aware of it, and they generally support NASA, and it's usually the most liked government agency. We don't know have that information about Australia. So a lot of arguments are, are often made to policymakers and to government about, you know, we need to do space, the public supports it, or we need to do space, it's cool, or, or a lot of different things. But the problem is, is all of those statements were never backed up with actual data. So we wanted to be able to put together a baseline data set from which we could now measure Australian public opinion going forward. So that's what this survey essentially does. And we had some really interesting, interesting findings from this survey. So one of the, the big sort of top line things is that while we found that Australians are, are interested in space and the public, you know, is interested in what's going on, is they have a very low knowledge of what is actually happening in space, as well as a low knowledge of their reliance on space and space technology. 
one thing that I found very interesting is sort of jumping ahead in our results. But one question that I had put in, and I think I've probably talked about this research before um, on Talking Space because I've done it, is to look at um, when we ask people whether or not we're spending the right amount of money on space, how they answer. So when you ask this question in the U.S., and we ask it every um, every time we run the general social survey, and the general social survey is a survey, and some version of this is run in many countries around the world, that periodically surveys a sample of citizens on similar and often the very same question over years. So we have a question that's been asked about space for more than two decades. And it says, do you think we're spending the right amount of money on space? So it says, do you think it's too much, too little, or about the right amount? And there's an opportunity to say you have no opinion. When you ask this question to the U.S. public, only like 5.6% of people will say that they don't have an opinion on whether or not we're spending too much or too little money. And what that tells us is that people are aware that we're actually spending money on space. When you ask this question to Australians about um, whether or not they think they're spending enough money, we get a high percentage of people who actually don't know and are unsure and can't give in it and can't give um, an opinion on whether or not um, that's enough money. So I'm going to give you the exact percentage. So. Um, I'm looking at that here. It looks like 36%, so over yeah. a third. 36.4% don't know. Wow. Um, and then you've got, and, that, and that's the highest number, right? The highest number. And again, again, comparing this to the U.S., if you ask people in the U.S., it's 5.6% of people don't know. Um, so that just gives you an idea of like saturation of, of space spending, like within the pu public. But even if you ask like about the right amount, you get about 31% say about the right amount, too little, 20%, and too much, 11.5. Those percentages sort of balance out just a bit better with the U.S. if you sort of take out that huge don't know if like the portion of people that are represented um, you do get more people saying that we spend about the right amount in the U.S., but it's just this goes to illustrate that there, even though there's interest and in, in our survey reflects that people are interested in space activities, there's just not the knowledge about it. Um, and then we ask things like whether or not does space impact your everyday life in important ways? And it's only like 35, so a third of people agree that space impacts their everyday life. And, you know, as listeners of this show know, if we went a, a day without space, we would be essentially unable to function as a society. So many of us rely every day on space and space-based technologies that we wouldn't be able to function without them. Just recently watched um, a movie on Netflix, and I can't think of the name of it. It's Julia Roberts and sort of they're cut off from all communication. And I was just thinking this could be like a good, a good way to... Uh, to illustrate, you know, there's no telephone, there's no internet, there's no this, there's no GPS, and they just are completely cut off. It's very interesting, but that's sort of what you think of with, you know, the day without space. Um, we could be looking at something like that. So in that same question, you know, almost half of our respondents, and we had just over 1,500 people, so it was a very um, a good side sample 
low margin of error. It was nationally representative. Um, so we have a good idea that this is a good representation of what the Australian public thinks. So just under half of people were neutral on that question. So couldn't say whether or not space impacted their everyday life. And almost 20% of people said that it didn't. Mind you, we are a country full of incredibly rural and regional areas that are hard to access, where if you want something like medical care in some areas, you have to rely on a flying doctor service to get medical care out to you because there's no way to reach you quickly in an emergency otherwise. And that's, you know, even flying is going to rely on space technology, right? Um, also very, uh, we're very vulnerable to, uh, things like bushfire and climate, as lots of people are. But Australia doesn't even have any sovereign Earth observation capabilities. Interestingly, we also asked about the cancellation of a um, national mission that did how would have to do with Earth observation and whether or not people agreed or disagreed with that uh, cancellation. So we asked, um, the mission was called the National Space Mission for Earth Observation, and the amount of people who agreed with the cancelization was over 30%. So over a third of people agree with that, even though we rely heavily on purchasing data from other countries to do everything that we would do with Earth observation data. So that's weather prediction, um, bushfire prediction, any sort of movement of tracking. Um, we actually use a lot of Earth observation in uh, land use, cultural land management, so we're reliant on this data every day, but yet people agreed with it. Now, we do have some theories on this. In the survey, we actually gave the cost of the mission. When you give people a cost with government spending, whether it's on space or anything, there tends to be less support. So having provided a cost might have influenced their agreement with that because it's a high cost and it seems like a lot of money. Uh, if you put it in the, the big sort of picture of a budget, it's not that much money, but it seems like a lot. We also found sort of hand in hand with this is that most people didn't understand what Earth observation was um, or the, the, the definition of Earth observation. Um, so that could also explain it. So if they don't understand what Earth observation is, then they may not be able to connect the importance of having sovereign or um, Australian-owned capabilities in Earth observation. However, interestingly, after we asked them whether or not they knew what Earth observation was, when we gave a list of Earth observation applications, the highest priority was weather forecasting, um, mapping followed by mapping and surveying, monitoring climate change, and disaster monitoring and response. So people, once you sort of gave them applications, were like, oh, yeah, we, we agree with these things. These things are important. So again, the survey was really exciting because it allowed us to sort of establish these baselines of what do people think and, and where do we go from here? And I think the other sort of very interesting um, finding, especially for someone like me, because, you know, my specialty is public opinion and political behavior and what people, what people think about that is, you know, how salient... And salient is a word that political scientists mean to use to, um, to describe how aware the public is of an issue. So if you're a high salience issue, you know, that could be something like 
the economy. Most people follow news on the economy. It's high salience. Low salience issues include space. Even in the United States, space tends to be a low salience issue, um, with the exception of when something is going on. Uh, Other low salience issues can be something like regulation for railway, right? Unless we've just had a big accident, people aren't really following those regulations. We asked the um, our group of respondents um, if they'd follow the Australian Space Agency's activities since its inception in 2018. So the Australian Space Agency was um, announced in 2017 at the International Astronautical Congress, which I was at. It was here in Adelaide. And then it was actually stood up and started in 2018. So that's five years ago. 20.8% of the Australian public was unaware that there was an Australian space agency. Um, and then you have more than 33% who don't follow its activities, 26% who are neutral, and only just under 20% of people who are following the Australian space agency activities. To me, as someone who follows public opinion, that indicates that there has been a lack of publicity or a lack of sharing around the activities that have done. And keep in mind that during this time, the space agency has signed major agreements, is supporting the development of a rover for the moon, for NASA's moon landings, um, and has generally been quite involved in a lot of the things that are going on in space internationally right now. Um, Yet people are not that aware of it. We even had the first ever fully commercial launch done by NASA in Australia in July of this year, I believe. Um, It was a suborbital launch. Um, It was the first ever at a fully commercial facility. Let me correct myself there. Um, And even that, you know, hasn't penetrated sort of the Australian consciousness of what's going on in space. So it's very interesting. So for us, that gives, you know, the Australian Center for Space Government, who we are, you know, nonpartisan, we're just looking to advocate for sustainable, safe use of space um, and for appropriate regulatory and policy and legal um, issues in space. So that allows us to talk to government, um, both at the national and the local level, uh, state level, um, and territory level, and to say, here's where we can do a better job at informing the public the necessity of activities in space. And also we can demonstrate that the public is actually interested in this. They just don't know where to go for information or they're just not getting that information. So it's a really exciting project. I encourage you, as I said, though, the report is public, freely available. You can get it off of our website. We'll drop the links in there. Um, but this is actually just sort of the start. This was the the first pass of the data. I'm actually currently involved in doing this sort of more deeper quantitative analysis where we're running some regressions, where we can look at the impact of things like people's political beliefs on their supportive space. Um, so we'll, we will have more research coming out of this. Um, and I'm sure I'll talk about it here on Talking Space. But it's really exciting just to be able to, you know, be involved with a first of its kind survey and then getting to take some of that data and compare it to data in other countries. Kat, this is really fascinating. I'm looking at a, a, a sort of a wrap-up summary article about the the survey on theconversation.com. And one of the sections they talk about is the source of respondents' knowledge about space. And the, the one that really leaped out at me was fictional mediums like movies or television <laughs> or fiction books. Like, And this was, I guess... It, 
20, it's not 21.7% of the respondents only got it from fiction. I guess what that statistic there is actually saying that 21.7% of people said it was one of the places where they got information yes. about space. Wasn't the only place necessarily, but still the fact that 22% of people mentioned from, from works of fiction, that's where I get my information. <laughs> yeah. And we actually, we included that. So this is when I like people could sort of check the boxes where they got it because we've had other surveys where people do get their space news from things like watching, um, you know, Stargate or Star Trek or Star Wars. <laughs> it just seems sort of insane, but like they get their information about space from, from fiction. Which is a great, I think, way to like spark interest in space. But mm-hmm. as we know, fiction is not real. So um, sometimes you also get some interesting theories that come from people who are mainly getting their news from that. Um, especially with, um, I've heard some interesting conversation around um, for all is it for all mankind the Apple TV show because it's just this alternative reality of like what happens if the Russians beat the Americans just to the moon. Right. Um, so people do have an interesting sort of, you know, way in which fictional media can inform their understanding of space. Um, it can be quite positive too. People can sort of, um, you know, having fiction inform space can actually lead to uh, a more pluralistic view of space. So if you get people who are big Trekkies and they really love Star Trek, they tend to have like, sort of like, Hey, we need to be peaceful in space. Um, whereas if you get people who might be more fans of say, you know, our favorite Western set in space, Star Wars, they may be more like, no, it's everyone from themselves. You got to go out and you have to do this. Um, so it's really interesting the way that those fictional medias now, this wasn't, this sort of was not in our report. This is just my observations from having spoken to people, um, about how their, uh, media consumption or their, um, entertainment consumption can impact the way they've used. The other thing that, that leaped out at me was uh, the 23.7% of people who said, I do not receive or seek out information about space. Yeah. And I think we see that in, in across all countries. There are people who just, you know, they don't care. They see it as a, a waste of money, unfortunately. I actually did a radio interview with a station in Perth and one of the hosts, like, you know, when you do a radio interview, you hear them speak for a little bit before they bring you on. And before they brought me on, he was like, oh, I think waste space is a waste of money. <laughs> then we have our whole conversation. And like the one of the disc jockeys who's like, you know, very into space, he's like, oh, yeah, what, what do we use? Why is space important? And so I was able to talk about the technologies that we use in space. And then, you know, they're like, oh, thanks so much. And then I go off air. And, <laughs> and the first thing he says is, I still think space is a waste of money. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's, you know, I was just oh, laughing. Man. I'm just like, you know, you can't. Sometimes you just, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, right? Yep, for sure. By the way, that I just, it just got it. The, the film you were talking about was Leave the World Behind. Yes. Thank you for, for grabbing that name. It's very, yeah. it's, it's a very interesting film, but like I was watching it ha- after having just completed this report and thinking like, this is, you know, I mean, attacks and all that aside, you know, the other things that are in the, in the plot, but this, like this disconnect from the rest of the world is what a day without space would look like. Yeah. And the, and people, uh, I think what part of what that movie shows is how 
dependent people are on the internet and how it's literally something they're addicted to. They start to suffer the effects of withdrawal if they don't have it for even a day. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Lots of, lots of lessons in there. I've enjoyed uh, everything that, that Kat and Larry have been talking about. And I want to throw a, another thought in, um, I remember, and I don't know where this came from in, in your conversation, but thinking about how many sources of information and entertainment there are that are all competing for our attention on a day-to-day basis. And different things appeal to different people. But I distinctly remember on one of the social media platforms hearing about a, uh, a CubeSat-based satellite that was launched and it had a uh, account on social media that was being uh, updated on a frequent basis as if the spacecraft was speaking. And that was so, uh, it, it captured my attention. It, it's to this day, you know, I'm looking at a, a Wikipedia rundown on it. And this was called the NanoSail D, actually the NanoSail D2. And I'm remembering some of the details of it from its flight. It launched in 2010. It was deployed um, just after the first of the year. It had problems. It proved a lot of things, and it brought a lot of information to the community about solar sail-type technology. But the thing, and also another one was uh, Mars Phoenix, the Mars Phoenix lander. Uh, I met the lady from, I believe it was JPL, that uh, provided the Veronica the date- McGregor. Yes, <laughs> I just actually she's a she's a great friend of mine, Veronica. I just saw her when I was in the U.S. Actually, I had a very long layover in LAX, so she was very kind to come scoop me up and take me out um, and not make me spend twelve hours in the airport. But yeah, she actually pioneered the first person spacecraft talking that that tweet. It was in like yep. June of 2008. Sorry, Mark, don't mean to sweep in. No, go with um, it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, Veronica talks about this a lot and she really sort of the way that NASA uses social media owes a lot to her. And she pioneered this idea of spacecraft speaking in the first person. Right. Um, so really, really fantastic. Really. I mean, she's, if you Google her, I'm sure there's some recordings of her speaking about this and she's spoken about a lot of conferences about how um, NASA has used social media in order to connect with people. Um, But anyway, she's amazing. She is one of like those people that I just love and adore and I look up to her and I feel so lucky that I'm able to count her as a friend because I was definitely an admirer of her work for um, a long time before we met and she's just incredibly generous and incredibly smart and she's still at NASA JPL. Um, doing doing all the hard work to get to get spaces message out there. It really indicates how challenging it is to get the word out when we have such a varied uh, span of interest as you know, just the general public. And I remember talking to uh, astronaut Nicole Stott one time, and we were talking about a movie, and she was saying, you know, there's things about that movie that just they don't work. I said, well, how do you feel about it in general? And she said, I'm glad it's out there because it's something that gets people thinking about space. It brings attention to it. And in that respect, she was positive about it, even though some of the science and some of the drama was a little far out, uh, even in some of the 
standards that Hollywood sets. Speaking of getting the public involved in space, Mark, I think you have some uh, reminders to share with our audience. Yeah, I wish we could have done a show weeks ago because it would have been a little more timely. But things that always, again, outreach type activities that get my attention and I've participated in a few, shall we say. But NASA has a, uh, a website for the Europa Clipper. And it's an opportunity to join your mission, have your name engraved on the Europa Clipper spacecraft as it travels to explore Europa, an ocean world that may support life. It's called Message in a Bottle. We'll have a link for it. If you miss the deadline, which is the end of 2023, uh, you can still, uh, for those of you that have signed up for it, you can check in and see if your name is uh, ready to go to Europa. And I think it's a cool little thing to, to participate in. Also, if you've ever wanted to see what you would look like on Mars, NASA has the Mars Perseverance Photo Booth. And they have an assortment of eight backgrounds. I would say a little over half of which uh, are Mars background scenery that you can take your picture and drop it into a silhouette that's provided there. You can frame your image on Mars or at uh, outside of, uh, of JPL. So in fact, there's one from the mission control room. Yeah, I could see myself there, but uh, take a look at the Mars Perseverance photo booth, have some fun. I'm sure there's been pictures taken here and there far and wide with the holidays at this time of year. But uh, have some fun with, with maybe one of your images and drop it in there and show your friends and family far and wide where you have been. I want to see a picture of Mark on the console. Yeah, Same. yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I don't know. It, it's kind of hard to pass up being there in front of Perseverance, you know, being tested with all the uh, techs in their, in their bunny suits. You know, <laughs> but yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, back in the day, I went to a tweet up when they were called tweet ups at JPL, and they had it set up that they took 3D pictures of us in a Mars scape. So I have um, in North Carolina at my house there a printed picture of me and my friend Tanya on Mars. And if you have the red blue 3D glasses, we are in 3D. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that stuff's fun. And, you know, gosh, you, you, you got to get close to where the action is to have those experiences. You got to visit places like Kennedy Space Center, Marshall Space Flight Center, uh, Houston, um, JPL, Goddard Space Flight Center. You got to visit these places. You got to get you got to get out there and take some of those pictures. I took a picture one time um, of, of my wife. We were at uh, at Kennedy Visitor Center. And the background was a, you know, one of those, I don't know, let's say 1960s uh, needle nose, high performance, you know, fighter interceptor type aircraft with astronauts lined up behind you. And I took a picture of her in the foreground of it. And I thought, you know, that just looks cool. And that's how you make memories. You get out there do some different things, see some different things, tell people about it. Speaking of telling people about it, there have been a lot 
of rocket launches this year. And um, just to tease you, if you want to go to Wikipedia and look up 2023 in spaceflight, the, uh, the notes at the bottom of the page, at this point, number 98, as to references that people have dropped into this article, the number of flights, the number of Falcon 9 launches, the number of booster landings, everything keeps going up and up and up. And one of the things that has my attention, I wish I could go to it, I think I'm going to miss, is um, the X-37B program by the military, by the uh, U.S. Space Force. And they're planning to launch that in a couple of days. I hope it goes off. If it does, there'll be two SpaceX launches on the 28th of December. I hope they're successful. And there's another one planned uh, just after that in California. So be interesting to see what our count is for the year. Speaking of count for the year, uh, back to talking space, we're going to be here as much as we can, doing as much as we can. And uh, please don't hold it against us. If we're missing here and there for longer than we want to, stick with us. Tell people what you like, hopefully, about our show and spread the word that we're still there. We still have website problems. Yeah, sorry about that. That's how it goes when you're a volunteer operation. Uh, we'll get that fixed eventually. We are still able to publish. And if you're listening to this, you know that you can get our podcast on many platforms. We're out there. We appreciate you listening. Cat, um, anything you'd like to say in closing? Just always happy to be here for another year. Look forward to bringing you more news in the new year. And I think that um, as uh, you mentioned, Mark, there's going to be maybe a bit of a, of a break um, or as we sort of recover from the holidays, but we'll be back and better than ever. And I think Larry's got some news for you about um, what's coming up. Yeah, we do have, uh, I'll, I'll just say that we have a couple of uh, special episodes coming your way to round out season 15 of Talking Space. Um, and maybe we'll just leave it as that much of a surprise, or maybe I'll just mention one word, retrospective. And we'll let it go at that. We'll be back soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a good year. Have a better next year.